How many of you are ready to go through the book? The book of Revelation. The book of Revelation. And this is going to be a good one. I want to remind you that, um, well, let's pray first. Father, we just thank you right now that you are the great illuminator. I can't communicate anything, Lord, without your help. I need the anointing of God, Lord, right now. And I pray for the anointing of the Spirit of God right now to infiltrate this place. And, Lord, take veils off of eyes and, Lord, unstop our ears and give us understanding hearts so that we can see and hear and understand what Jesus had in mind for the church when he gave John this revelation, and we thank you for it. Lord, give the people ears to hear, and thank you, Lord, for your spirit brooding over this place right now. The great teacher of the church, the Holy Ghost, Holy Spirit, thou art welcome in this place as teacher. And, Lord, we thank you for it. Will you breathe a prayer, church, and say, Lord, speak to my heart tonight. I receive your word in Jesus' name. Amen. Tell your neighbor, get ready. This is going to rock your world tonight. Amen. I'm going to try to get this down a little bit. Let's see. How do you, okay, there, there we go. All right. Everybody happy tonight? Now, I want to remind you, here, here's the book. And um, there's Kathy. Say hello to Kathy. There she is. Hello, sweetie. All right. Um. This is the book, and I want to remind you that we've left a lot of space on either side of the pages for margins for you to take notes. And I want to encourage you to take notes because you know why? Paper never forgets. Your brain will forget, but paper never forgets. And so I encourage you to do that. And uh, I am going to be signing books again at the end. So if you haven't gotten one and would like to grab one, listen, what a great soul-winning tool. Because if there's any part of the Bible our culture wants to dig into and understand and hear about, it's the book of Revelation. I've had people buying two and three apiece just to give them away when they went to a restaurant or something. Here, read this. Because you can't read this and not um, go, oh, my gosh, he's coming back. And so it's a soul-winning tool. Now, Let's dig right into the Word of God, and, and uh, again, let me remind you also that I, I'm pretty much teaching right along with the books. So if you want to just follow along in the book, um, uh, you can do so, and if you don't have the book but you want to see the notes, it's going to be up on the screen. And Boy, didn't they do a good job on that. That's the first time I've seen this. It's all behind me. All right. Uh, let's, let's just talk real quickly about last time. Last time we saw that the key theme of the Revelation is the second coming of Jesus Christ, his visible, literal return. Not an imagination, not a figment of somebody's imagination, not a metaphor, not an idea, not figuratively speaking, but he's literally coming back. And he said so over and over again. This is called the parousia. That's the word, parousia, meaning, or parousia, depending on what seminary you went to. meaning his presence or arrival. So when you hear parousia or parousia, that's talking about his presence, his arrival, literally to earth again. Can you say with me, he's coming again? 
Now we close with Jesus delivering a brief but potent message to seven churches that this is the way the revelation opens up. Uh, John first is told by Jesus, I'm coming back. And then Jesus turns his gaze and turns his focus to seven churches that existed in John's day. Last time we covered the first two, Ephesus and Smyrna. Now, when Jesus spoke to these churches, it's like he had a little postcard for each one of them, a little something he wanted to say to each one of them. And what got me about this is when Jesus spoke to these churches, he knew intimately everything, like an x-ray, everything you could know about these churches, Jesus knew it. You can't be a pastor, and I don't even think you can be a church member, and really think about what you're reading when you see Jesus reading their mail. And six out of the seven churches, he starts out good, but then he says, but I have this against you. There's only one church that he doesn't have anything against. He knows this church. He knows the members. He knows me. He knows every church in the world has got his name on it. And can Jesus read our mail? Oh, yes, he can. So, and, so there was something unique and different that he spoke to every one of these churches. And as I shared last time, uh, these churches really represent churches all through the ages. There, there's a little something of every church in every one of these seven churches. So we can learn from every one of them. And if this is the way Jesus opened up the revelation, then this is what we need to look at. Amen? So the third church in the list of seven is in Pergamos. And it is the lax, compromising, and corrupted church. Now, I know there's no churches like that, but let's just look at it anyway. Amen? Now, now I want you to notice that two false doctrines had crept into this church, and Jesus knew all about it. The first is the doctrine of Balaam. Revelations 2, verse 14, follow along. Jesus says, but I have a few complaints against you. You tolerate some among you whose teaching is like that of Balaam, who showed Balak how to trip up the people of Israel. He taught them to sin by eating food offered to idols and by committing sexual sin. Now, you remember um, the king of Moab tried to buy Balaam off, and Balaam kept saying, no, I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to prophesy against God's people, and he refused to do it several times. But then Balaam caved in, and he took money, and he said, listen, if you want to trip up Israel, here's what you do. You cause your people, the Moabites, to intermingle and intermarry with the Israelites, and that will bring God's judgment on them. And so the king of Moab said, that's great advice. So he went and told his people, now I want you to get into a relationship with the children of Israel, and I want you to intermarry and befriend them. And that way, because you cause them to compromise the word of God that has come to them, that said, don't intermarry with the heathen. What fellowship has light with darkness? What fellowship has Christ with Belial? You know that verse in the New Testament. But God had said, I I want you to marry amongst yourselves because I want to produce a holy seed that changes and influences and impacts the entire world. And so Balaam said, hey, if you want to know how to take them down, do it through relationships. Now, church, what can we learn from that? If you want to learn how to take them down, do it through relationships. 
Everybody say there's nothing new under the sun. Because let me give you a little saying that I, I say from time to time. Here you go. Ready? If, if God wants to bless you, he sends a person into your life. You ever notice that? If Satan wants to destroy you, he sends a person into your life. Because both God and the devil know the power of relationship. And so, Balaam said, that's what I want you to do. Now, somebody in this church that we're reading about right now, the church of Pergamos, somebody was teaching this amongst, within this church. The doctrine of Balaam was the doctrine of compromise. And compromise always leads to corruption. So that was among them. And Jesus saw it. Now, the second false teaching was the doctrine of the Nicolaitans. This doctrine encouraged sexual immorality, or what we would call hedonism with a spiritual twist. In Revelations 2, 15 to 16, let's read it. Jesus warns them, quote, in a similar way, you have some Nicolaitans among you who follow the same teaching. Repent of your sin, or I will come to you suddenly and fight against them with the sword of my mouth. Now, let me read to you something out of Haley's Bible handbook. He's really a a commentator. Listen to what he said. Sexual vice was actually a part of Nicolaitan heathen worship and recognized as a proper thing in heathen festivals. Priestesses of Diana and kindred deities were public prostitutes, but because it was under a religious guise, it was accepted by the people because they were priestesses. In Ephesus, Haley goes on to say, the Christian pastors as a body excluded such teachers, but in Pergamum and Thyatira, while we are not to think that the main body of pastors held such teachings, yet they, what is the word? They tolerated within their ranks those who did. Now, you know what I hear Jesus saying right here? There are times you should not be tolerant. So much for PC. PC's middle name, political correctness, is tolerance. We need to be tolerant because that's the way you show love, not according to Jesus. Jesus said, I'm all over your case because you're being tolerant of sin. Everybody say, oh, me or amen. Okay? So he's saying, don't, don't try to put a good spin on sin. And if, just by putting it into a religious context does not make wrong right. Now, I try to put a little nugget of truth at the end of every one of these churches. So here's the nugget over this one. It's the responsibility of every Christian to discern truth from error. Can we read that together? It's the responsibility of every Christian to discern truth from error. And it clearly matters a great deal to Jesus what is taught in the church. If you're going around saying, hey, as long as I'm in a relationship, that makes wrong right. Can I tell you something here that we would learn from Pergamos and from Jesus speaking to them? Love does not sanctify sin. Okay? So these people who were encouraging relationships that were ungodly in the name of love were wrong, and Jesus said so. Now, the fourth church is in Thyatira. 
It is the decadent church that drifted into darkness. Boy, isn't it something what happened to these churches and Jesus spoke to them? Look at what was happening to these early first century churches. Jesus' opening words tell a, a lot. It says, quote, this is the message from the Son of God, whose eyes are like flames of fire, whose feet are like polished bronze. (laughs) Read the next part with me. I know all the things you do. See, Santa Claus got that from Jesus. (laughs) He knows if you've been right or wrong. What does Jesus say right here? I know all things you do. See, we can fool people, but you can't fool Jesus. He knows all things we do. I have seen your love, he goes on to say, your faith, your service, and your patient endurance. And I can see your constant improvement in all these things. Isn't it good to see that Jesus does see when we improve? Amen? Amen. So he's not just uh, correcting them, but he's saying, He's giving them an attaboy, okay? We can almost feel in this verse the penetrating, fiery eyes of the Son of God as he peers into this local assembly. And as with most of the other churches, there is a, but I have this complaint against you involved. So let's see what it was. Almost all the Lord's message to Thyatira deals with a woman named Jezebel. Now I'm convinced this really was a real woman. Some have taught that this was just a a philosophy that John tagged with the name of Jezebel, but no, it it was a woman. There there was a woman in this congregation. Her name was Jezebel. This woman had introduced idolatry and immorality into the congregation, and, and Jesus knew it. I know all things that you do. She was, according to Jesus in Revelations 2.20, leading my servants astray. She teaches them to commit sexual sin and to eat food offered to idols. So once again, with this church, you've got a woman who's teaching them to sin in the name of religion or or within a spiritual context to try to make wrong look right. The act of bringing idolatry and immorality into the local church is soundly condemned by the risen Savior. Look what he says to them. This is a very sobering word, but I'm just going to read it to you because it's in the book. Look what Jesus says. I gave her time to repent. This woman had already been dealt with by Jesus. I have given her time to repent, but she does not want to turn away from her immorality. Therefore, I will throw her on a bed of suffering. Uh Uh-oh. Would Jesus do that? That's not love. Don't we have a sick concept of love these days? Oh, Jesus just tiptoed through the religious tulips and said nice things to people, and he wouldn't do anything like judge us. Oh, you better get out of this class because we're about to see major judgment in the book of Revelation. Okay? But she doesn't want to do it. She doesn't want to turn. Therefore, I'm going to throw her into a bed of suffering. And watch this. Those who commit adultery with her will suffer greatly unless they repent and turn away from her evil deeds. Everybody say, he's the Lord of his church. church. I will strike, he goes, it says in verse 23, I will strike her children dead. Now, I don't think it meant little kids. I think he means the children of her heresy. The children birthed out from under this heresy of sexual sin 
That's the children he's talking about. Then all the churches will know that I'm the one who searches out the thoughts and intentions of how many people? Every person. And I will give to each of you whatever you deserve. Whoa, this is heavy stuff, church. This is heavy stuff. And you, you thought you were coming here about 666. Well, that's coming, but, but we got to deal with this. Because, see, let me tell you what we're going to come up against in the book of Revelation. Jesus was the Lamb of God when he came. He allowed them. I read it today. He allowed them to slap him and spit on him and mock him and ridicule him and abuse him and hang him on a cross. He allowed that. He allowed his own creation to wrong him. That was as the Lamb. But he's coming back as the Lion of Judah. And, and that is the one who judges. That is the one with the double-edged sword coming out of his mouth. That is, that is the lion, not a lamb. And we're going to see that, that sin, if you don't get under the blood and go to the cross and repent and let him forgive you, then there is a sobering day of judgment coming. And I want you to notice here that even within his own church, Jesus judges. I mean, are you reading what I'm reading? But then, thank God, there's a welcome promise delivered to Thyatira. Here's the promise. But I also, he says, I also have a message for the rest of you in Thyatira who have not followed this false teaching, deeper truths as they like to call them, but the depths of Satan actually. You ever had, when somebody tells you, hey, I've got, a, I've got another revelation, look for the exit sign. When somebody says, oh, I've got a deeper word than that church over there at Turning Point. Oh, they're so shallow over there. I've got a deep word. Come over here where we are. Anybody time somebody says to me, I've got a deeper word than what you've got, I immediately suspect them. I do. Because Jesus said, that's the way false teachers come across. I have deeper truth. But he said, to me, it's the depths of Satan. And then he says, I will ask nothing more of you except that you hold tightly to what you have until I come. Everybody say, hold tightly. What do you have? You're, you have your salvation. You have the blood of Jesus. You have the Bible in your hand. You, you've, you've got Jesus as your Lord and Savior. Uh, you are walking in spiritual truth. You're hearing the word of God tonight. What you have from him, hold it tight. And whatever is of this world, hold it loose. Look what he says, to all who are victorious, who obey me to the very end, to them I will give authority over all the nations. And that's talking about the millennial reign of Christ that we're going to deal with later in this series. So here's the nugget. Jesus calls the practice of normalizing sin, which is what Jezebel was doing. Oh, it's okay because it's in a religious context. Jesus calls normalizing sin the depths of Satan. So what has America been involved in? Hmm? America been doing a little bit of normalizing of sin. Oh, it's just normal. Oh, there's nothing wrong with that. It's just normal. And we're calling good evil and evil good and right wrong and wrong right and dark light and light dark. And Jesus here says, hey, when you normalize sin, I call that the depths of Satan. Now, the fifth church is in Sardis. And I, and I like it's the dead church that still had the lights on. Ever been into a church like that? It's the dead church that still had the lights on. And they hadn't paid the electric bill in a while. Sardis was a very old city, wealthy in textiles and jewelry making. 
Sardis had a prostitution temple to Diana as well as mystery cults. And in these cults, emotional hysteria and bodily mutilation took place. Anytime you ever see somebody mutilating their own body, demonic activity is involved, I guarantee you. The Sardis church had a reputation for being alive, but actually they were spiritually dead. Look what Jesus says of them. Verse 1, he says, I know all the things you do. There that is again. And that you have a reputation for being alive, but I know that's not true. You're dead. What did he say next? Wake up. Let's try that because some churches need to hear us on stream. They're going to hear this on radio. So let's just say, wake up. Have you ever had Jesus tell you to do that? Wake up spiritually. What do you think you're doing? Strengthen what little remains for even what is left is almost dead. They had a little flicker of life left, and that was blown in the wind. Okay? Their external appearance covered up an internal dying condition. The great physician felt their spiritual pulse and pronounced them dead. Now, they may have been a beehive of organized activity if you come up on this church today. Believe me, they're out there. they're they're, They're busy all the time doing all kinds of things. They got a reputation around town of being progressive, which means having forsaken the Word of God. Possessing a nice building, lots of money. I've been in churches that were deader than a hammer that had millions in the bank. Seriously. I've been in giant churches that had 100 people there on a Sunday morning and millions in the bank. They had a reputation that they were alive, but they were dead. Jesus said of this church, they had a name that lived, but man looks on the outer appearance while God looks on the heart. Therefore, the glorified Savior, the head of the church, pierced through the facade and diagnosed their spiritual illness. He did not find their works, what he calls perfect before God, and that word perfect is from a Greek word meaning finished or complete. Here's the idea. They had not finished or completed what God gave them to do. They had been sidetracked, detoured. They'd they'd gotten out of the way. They'd gotten off the narrow road. And whereas they started well, they were ending badly. I've known churches like that. I've known people like that. And I humble myself before God all the time. And I say, God, help me to finish strong. Because I know that I could get off track. You can get off track. Don't ever think that you couldn't. You could be here tonight and totally out of church in six months if you don't humble yourself before God and stay in the Word. Take heed lest any of you think you stand, lest you fall. That's what the Bible says. So the glorified Savior, the head of the church, has seen through them. They had not completed or finished their race, but they've been sidetracked, and they could not say with Paul, I have finished my course. I've kept the faith. Jesus commanded them as clear and sobering. Look what he says. Repent and turn to me again. If you don't wake up, I will come to you. How? Suddenly, as unexpected as a thief. Isn't it funny how Jesus will let us stray for a while? And we'll think, oh, man, I've been straying for a while, and not one thing has happened to me. So all that church stuff was a bunch of baloney. And then suddenly, the Lord meets you in the path. And says, wake up. 
What are you doing? What are you doing here? What are you doing with that? What are you doing with your life? Here's the nugget. While we may fool others, Jesus knows always our true spiritual condition. Again, I get before God all the time. I say, oh, God, please help me to stay strong. Help me to walk with you. Help me to finish well. Man, I want to I break that finish tape at the end. I don't want to come crawling up to it and do like this to it. I want to be running hard and break right through that finish tape. Now, the sixth church is in Philadelphia, and Philadelphia is the loving church. The loving church, Philadelphia, has been faithfully proclaiming the love of God. Look what Jesus says in Revelation 3, verse 7. I know all the things you do. There it is again. I think you can leave tonight knowing he knows everything you do. And I have, look what he says. I love this, and this is what I'm praying for in 2016. I have opened a door for you that nobody can close. How many of you want a door like that this year? A door that nobody can close. Jesus opens that door and says, come on through. You have little strength, yet you obeyed my word and did not deny me. Notice what mattered to Jesus, that they had obeyed and did not deny him. That's what mattered to Jesus. Philadelphia is the only church in which Jesus finds no blemishes. This is the only one that doesn't get one line of correction. He had opened for them a wonderful door, and here's what it was. It was a door for evangelism. Even those in Satan's synagogue would become convinced that their God was the true God. Look at verse 9. Look, I will force those who belong to Satan's synagogue those liars who say that they are Jews but are not. Now, let me ask you, who do those words come out of? Whose mouth? Did Jesus call somebody a liar? Well, that wasn't very nice of him. Right? I mean, come on, that, that couldn't have been Jesus because we sure can't ever say that somebody told a lie because we're supposed to walk in love, right? I want you to notice here, Jesus is tough. Okay? He is not... He is not um, a girly man. Isn't that what Schwarzenegger called it? A girly man? He's not, he's not PC. Now, now who, who is Satan's synagogue? It was the Judaizers. It was the Jewish, the Jews who said, you've got to come back to the Old Testament. They would go to those who had converted to Jesus and say, you've got to return to the Old Testament to be right with God. They were called Judaizers, and Jesus called them Satan's synagogue and called them liars. And look what he said he was going to cause to happen. He said, I'm going to cause them to come and bow down at your feet. They will acknowledge that you are the ones I love. See, if you walk right with God, he makes even your enemies to be at peace with you. Now, there is perhaps a prophetic hint in the next verse of the great tribulation. Verse 10 says this, Because you have obeyed my command to persevere, I will protect you from the great time of testing that is coming upon the whole world to test those who belong to this world. I am coming soon. Now, when you read that phrase, great time of testing, it coincides with the phrase great tribulation, which we're going to look at in grim detail going through the revelation. Because the revelation is going is to give us in 
living technicolor, scene by scene, the great tribulation happening on the earth as we read about it. And so look what Jesus said about the great tribulation. At that time there will be such affliction, oppression, and tribulation as has not been from the beginning of the creation which God created till this particular time and positively never will be again. Mark 13, 19. That's coming in the book of Revelation. Now, one final exhortation from Jesus to the church of Philadelphia. Look what he says. Hold on to what you have. Can we say that together? Hold on to what you have. And you've got a lot. If you're saved, you've got a lot. Hold on to what you have so that nobody will take away your crown. All who are victorious will become pillars in the temple of my God, and they will never have to leave it. And I will write on them. Look at what God's going to do. Watch this. In the world to come, the life to come, heaven. I will write on you, church, the name of my God. They will be citizens in the city of my God, the new Jerusalem that comes down from heaven from my God. And I will also write on them my new name. I'm going to lose Wickwire one day. You're going to get a new name. What will it be, Jeff? I don't know. But I know you're going to like it because he's going to give it to you. Now, the names that Jesus says he's going to write on us suggest stamps of ownership. The believers in glory will wear, as it were, the name of God, which is relationship. The name of the new Jerusalem, speaking of citizenship, and the new name of Christ, which is ownership forever. We, eye has not seen, nor has ear heard, nor has it entered into the heart of man what God has prepared for those who love him. We're just barely getting a little glimpse here of what God has prepared for those that love him. Now, here's the nugget. Speaking of the Philadelphia church, with even a little strength, much can be done, as the Philadelphia church illustrates. He said, you got a little bit of strength left, but look what he did with them. With a little bit of strength, he opened a great big door of evangelism, and they rocked the world of their day. Now, here we come to the seventh church, which is the worst one. This is the worst of the seven. It's the lukewarm church that nauseates Christ. Now, if one were to hold the belief that held by some that these seven churches are not only real churches in John's day, but also represent seven uh, historical phases the church would pass through before Christ's return, then Laodicea is absolutely without question the church of the last days, and we are in the last days. So this church is the church of the last days. Let's look at it. Some scholars believe that during the final stages of Christian history on planet earth, there will be no great worldwide revival. This is what some believe. Although powerful revivals could come in the end times, they will be localized. Lukewarmness is the end time trait of professing Christians according to the Word of God. Even Jesus asked this question in Luke 18, verse 8. You might want to write this down, Luke 18, 8. He said, when the Son of Man comes, will he really find faith on the earth? Did you hear that? When I return, am I going to find faith on the earth? Departing from the faith 
will characterize the last days Laodicean church. Write down 1 Timothy 4, verse 1, and let me quote it to you. Paul the Apostle warned. Now, the Spirit says clearly that in the last times, the last days, some people will abandon the faith by following deceitful spirits, the teachings of demons. So right there, Paul predicts that in the last days, there's going to be an apostasy away from the truth. Jesus finds absolutely nothing in this church to commend. With Philadelphia, there was nothing to condemn. With this one, there's nothing to commend. There's not one affirmation. Their lukewarm spiritual condition is utterly distasteful to the Lord. They're lukewarm. Now, according to his message to this seventh church, Jesus wants us to be hot or cold in the spiritual sense. Amen? Amen. He doesn't want us to be lukewarm. Revelation 3, verse 16 says, I know your works, that you are neither cold nor hot. So then, because you are lukewarm, I will spew you out of my mouth. That word spew, I'm going to go ahead and say it straight, means vomit. I want to throw you up if you're lukewarm. You know, not very many things are good lukewarm. Have you ever noticed that? Do you like lukewarm milk? I don't. Have lukewarm coffee. You cannot go into Starbucks. You can go and say, I want hot coffee, I want cold coffee, but they'll stare at you if you say, I'm here for some lukewarm coffee. Can you give me a tall, lukewarm? You know what they'll say to you? We don't do lukewarm. Neither does God. (laughs) He said, I want you boiling, fervent, hot, or I want you ice cold. Make up your mind. Get out of the middle of the road. The only thing you see in the middle of the road is dead squirrels that couldn't make up their mind. Have you ever seen one in the middle of the road? They do this, and then it's too late. And some of you, 20 years, you've been... Things die in the middle of the road. Right? Get out of the middle of the road. That's what Jesus is telling these people. Get out of the middle of the road before you're killed. The Laodicean church claimed wealth and prominence, but in God's sight, they were in deep spiritual trouble. Revelations 3.17, you say, I am rich. I have everything I want. I don't need a thing. But you don't realize that you are wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. Yet ever the redemptive Savior, Jesus advises them to buy gold tried in the fire and eye salve with which to anoint their eyes that they might truly see. And let me just two words here. Gold represents the deity of Christ. He's saying to them, get back to the real Jesus. Get back to Jesus. And I salve represents spiritual illumination by the Holy Spirit. We all need it every day. That's what I prayed for essentially when I prayed over this service tonight. Lord, give us eyes to see. Because the eye salve comes from heaven where you can see spiritual truth. Without it, you won't see spiritual truth. The Bible will be a dead book. The ISAV is the Holy Spirit of God. He says, I want you to get your eyes clear again so you're not blind, the blind leading the blind. So you don't think you're rich when you're really poor. I want you to see things the way they really are. I wish I could pray that over America. 
I wish America could have a, an awakening where they saw their true spiritual condition. Because just like this church, America is in peril. These Laodiceans were seeing yet blind, rich yet poor, knowledgeable yet foolish. I personally believe the church today is the Laodicean church. That's my own conviction, the church of apostasy. So much of today's church has departed from the faith. We've had whole denominations walk away from the Word of God, particularly the belief in the deity of Christ, the infallible Word of God, and the importance of genuine righteousness and sincere godliness, in other words, really walking in the Spirit and not just having a religious show. In other words, you're the real deal. You're not... They put on. There's no pretense. What we see is what we get. The church in much of the world, certainly the Western church, has become focused on material riches. Have you noticed? Which is what characterized the Laodicean church. I tell you, I can't watch most of what is called Christian TV. I may get in trouble for this, but I can't take these fundraisers. I just can't. You know, send in 10, you'll get 100. You know, pick a time in the month, the 28th of February. Send in your $28. God told me $28. It'd be in February 28th, and you're in for a year of jubilee and this and all this other. It, 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 listen, it's, it so hurts the image of the church. It's all about money. We equate money with faith. And we've even been led to believe, and I didn't mean to go off on this, but we've been led to believe that you've got to buy blessings, that God won't do anything for you unless you sow a seed. i got news for you. If you don't have a penny to your name and you pray, God will bless you. I mean, I, I know that God blesses you when you give, and, I, and you know, I, I know that, but it shouldn't be our motive. It's not like he's, he's a heavenly investment firm. The, 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 you know, you put in that $100 check, and send it to some ministry, and my Lord, the rest of your year is going to rock. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I just, it hurts me when I hear that stuff. Okay, that's free. That's not in your book. Leave it out of the notes. I'll hear about it when it goes on radio. But God help us to get to the place where it's not about materialism. It's about Him. It's about, the, it's about the richness and the riches of Jesus Christ and the blessings of God that are spiritual in nature. We ought to give because we want somebody to be blessed. That's it. May God help us to keep the flame of zeal lit, the fire of first love ablaze, and the oil in our lamps fueled with the moving of the Holy Spirit. Here's the nugget. Lukewarmness is the pitfall. In end time, professing Christians should be aware of. All right, now that the Lord has finished addressing the churches, he's about to give John the trip of a lifetime as he calls the apostle up into the sights and sounds of heaven. We're at least going to start chapter 3. Now, that's chapter 3 in your book. John sees heaven. Now, just recapping real quickly, we've just looked at the seven churches to which John initially addresses his revelation. And here they were. First church, Ephesus, the lacking church. Second, Smyrna, the loyal church. Third, Pergamos, the lax church. Fourth, Thyatira, the loose church. Fifth, Sardis, the lifeless church. Sixth, 
Philadelphia, the Loving Church, and 7th Laodicea, the Lukewarm Church. There you have seven L's. It's easy to remember. Now we come to chapter 4 where John is caught up into the throne room of God. Now I want to say something right here before we start chapter 4. I want to point out that many Bible teachers will tell you, and they're good people. They're, they're good people. I'm teaching you, uh, like I have often said to those listening to me, chew the meat, meat and spit out the bones. If you don't agree with me, God will show you later. No, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. Just keeping it light. Just keeping it light. But I got to teach the w- the way I've, I have interpreted after really studying. I- I've got to be straight with what I've come to. So a lot of Bible teachers will tell you that chapter 4, verse 2, where John is told, come up here, come up here, he's told, into heaven for a, for a view of glory, that that represents the rapture of the church. But the text doesn't say that. The text just says, John, come up here. It doesn't say, John and church, come up here. It says, John, come up here. Such an interpretation for me has to be read into it. Now, we do find all through the Revelation scenes, and we're going to see them, and they're glorious, in which vast multitudes are seen in heaven worshiping the Lamb, and it has to be the redeemed because of the way they're portrayed. But Here's what I'm driving at. A clear-cut description of the rapture or catching up of the church is hard to find in the Revelation. It really is. It's hard to find. The various passages often cited by other teachers, for me, seem somewhat forced. Now, you can study it yourself, but I'm going to look at the words and what it says, and that's the way I'm going to interpret it. Now, one event is clearly described all throughout the book of Revelation, and that is the second coming of Jesus Christ to the earth. Now, now let's read the verses I was talking about, Revelation 4, 1 and 2. Then as I looked, says John, I saw a door standing open in heaven, and the same voice I had heard before spoke to me like a trumpet blast. The voice said, what does it say? Come on, come up here. But who's it talking to? John. And I will show you what must happen after this. And look what he says. Instantly, I was in the Spirit. Whoa. Now, I want you to notice that verse 1 tells us that what John is about to see is prophetic in nature because he says to John, I will show you what is going to happen after this, future tense. I'm about, John, to prophesy to you, to show you what the future holds. Chapters 1 through 3 have dealt with things that are in John's day. But now starting with chapter 4 through the rest of the book, chapter 22, it's all future. We're about to go into the future. In chapters 4 and 5, an incredible drama now unfolds before John's eyes. He sees three things, the absolute sovereign God over the affairs of men, the absolute earthly authority of Jesus the Messiah and the providence of God in the coming world tribulation. As terrible as the tribulation is, God's got everything in his hands. He's in charge. Not the devil, not wicked men, not the Antichrist. God's in charge. John is left completely speechless by what he witnesses. First, God is seen as a king on a throne. Look at verse 3. The one sitting on the throne, 
was as brilliant as gemstones. Now, here he goes, like or as. He's looking for words to describe it. He says, the one sitting on the throne was like jasper and sardius, and the glow of an emerald circled his throne like a rainbow. Three gemstones are mentioned. Picture this with me. Use your sanctified imagination. Jasper is a clear crystal stone which pictures purity. Sardius is blood red stone, no doubt picturing the blood of the Lamb. And an emerald, as you know, is light green stone, and that in the Bible symbolizes majesty and royalty. Look what John is seeing. Come up here. And all of a sudden, he's in the Spirit, and he is seeing the throne room of God. And then John starts looking around, and look what he sees. Twenty-four thrones surrounded him, and twenty-four elders sat on them. They were all clothed in white and had gold crowns on their heads. Now, one explanation for the 24 elders is that they represent all of the redeemed believers worshiping before God. They are, they are representative or symbolic of. In the Old Testament, the priesthood was divided into 24 divisions. And in this church age, each believer is a priest before God. You are a chosen generation. You are a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a called-out people. The elders shown are all dressed in white, which is a picture of redemption. The crowns they wear picture rewards and authority. And since this is a future, or this is future, and they are in heaven worshiping God, and this is our final destination, then this explanation of the 24 elders representing the church makes sense. Then John sees more. Look what he sees at Revelation 4, verse 5. From the throne came flashes of lightning and the rumble of thunder. The lightning and the thunder John witnesses represent the awesome judgment and righteousness of the presence of God. You know what it's telling us? Judgment is approaching. We've all had the experience. You're in your house and you hear a distant thunder. And you go out there and, and you look in the direction it came from and you see dark clouds amassing on the horizon. And as they draw nearer, you see lightning flashing within those clouds. And again, a rumble of thunder comes after that lightning. You know that a storm is coming. That's what he's seeing. The storm of God's judgment is coming. The writer of Hebrews describes the same thing regarding the appearance of God in the Old Testament. You have not come to the mountain that may be touched and that burned with fire and to blackness and darkness and tempest. This is what they saw in the Old Testament. And the sound as God came down upon Mount Sinai and the sound of a trumpet and the voice of words so that those who heard it begged that the word should not be spoken to them anymore. In other words, it was a terrifying sight. John notes, in front of the throne was a shiny sea of glass, sparkling like crystal. Folks, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's hard to find words to describe this. All these colors. And then now, stretching out as far as the eye can see, is a sea that looks like glass. That sea of glass represents eternity. 
because one of the most permanent substances to the ancients was glass. Everything else rusted, fell apart, eroded, but God's sovereign throne room is eternal. So John sees, as far as his eye could see, this, this sea of glass that looked like glass. It was so calm, so placid, so beautiful, stretching out into eternity. Our God is an eternal God. Amen? Amen. All right, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to have to close out pretty quick here. But here, let me, let me do a little bit more. The amazed old apostle goes on to describe, in the center and around the throne were four living beings, each covered with eyes, front and back. The first of these living beings was like, you know what, I'm going to stop because this is something, you're already overdosed. <laughs> and these beings, you can't handle this at the end of all this information. Because this is better than anything Spielberg would ever come up with. So let's just stand up together and we'll pick it up next week. <clears throat> How many of you are glad you came to church tonight? <clears throat> Amen. All right, let's just pray. Thank you, Lord, for your blessing on the house of God tonight. Thank you that you know all about the churches. And you're always calling us upward and encouraging us to walk with you. Lord, give us eyes to see. Don't let us, anyone in this congregation or watching by video or listening by radio, don't let any of us be a part of that lukewarm Laodicean church. But help us, Lord, to be hot, red hot for Jesus. Now, can you lift your hands towards the Lord and say, Lord, I really do pray, help me to be red hot, spiritually red hot. For Jesus, that I would shun lukewarmness in the name of the Son of God.